All right. Guess what time it is? Wait, wait, wait. It's time for the sermon. Time for the sermon. Okay, got you there. Yeah, you can cheer that. We, maybe we need to make that a ritual every, every Sunday. No, we're glad that you're here. Uh, um, you know, I want to check and see if anybody else did some spring cleaning this week after last week's message on drawing the line. Anybody else go through? Yeah, I, I discovered something. I was working on my garage this week. I discovered the top of the workbench. It was really cool. It was, yeah, got through some of the stuff, not all the stuff, but some of it, and it feels good. So um, we've been in a series uh, called Finally Free. And you know, when I think of freedom, I just think of like the feeling of a bird in flight. And there's a friend of mine who I went to high school with who's a photographer. And I, I borrowed some of her pictures off her Facebook page because she's found that there are eagles near my hometown of Milton, Wisconsin. And so here's some of the pictures she's been able to capture. Just amazing imagery of these um, majestic birds. You know, in 1782... Um, our government leaders made that the symbol for our country because of the eagle's strength and because of freedom. And freedom may be the highest virtue we hold to in our country. I mean, we have, we have freedom of expression. We have freedom uh, to, to bear arms, freedom to, uh, to worship as we choose, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble. Um, we're free to pursue uh, the means of happiness, whether that's get an education, get a job, marry the person we want to marry, travel inside the country, outside the country. We have so many freedoms in our nation. And all you have to do is travel to some other places in the world and you realize, man, I really do have it good where I live because there's so much freedom. And yet what's so ironic is we then put ourselves into bondage in a number of ways. It might be through um, addictive behaviors. It might be through our, our weak habits that we engage in. And over the last few weeks, I've shared with you some of the ways financially we put ourselves in bondage. One of those is through credit and debt. It has become the American way to live on debt. And so most of us go through our lives never knowing what it's like not to pay someone interest to use their money. So whether it be credit cards, loans, those kinds of things, mortgages, we we just think that's the normal way to live. And so I'm kind of ashamed in a way to say I still have a mortgage I'm paying on after all these years. But in in nine years, it'll be paid off. And for the first time in my life as an adult, I will be totally free from every creditor. And I'm looking forward to that day. It's going to be a great celebration when I can burn that mortgage. But for many of us, we've lost sight that it's even a possibility to be free from debt. We've got to cut the cord. We've got to say no more. I'm not going to rely on that to get through life. Then last week, I looked at another way in which we come under bondage, and that is through the accumulation of stuff. It's like we get so much stuff that the things we own start to own us, and they begin to dictate what we do with the rest of our lives. And so we spend time managing what we have and ensuring what we have and protecting and polishing and maintaining, and and on and on it goes uh, to maintain the stuff that we have. And so we go through our lives sometimes not able to seize the opportunities God gives us because of the stuff we've already um, put under our roof or in our garages or in our storage. You know, we're not able to respond to, to people that have needs. We're not able to, to give, give to God what we'd like to give. And so we want to break free from those things. And last week it was about drawing the line, saying, you know, at what point do I say that's enough? That's enough. I've got enough. Enough for me. I'm happy. I'm content. Now I need to look outside of me. Because the culture will t- keep telling you, you need more, you need more, you need more. It's a never-ending pursuit. Well, today I want to share with you what I believe is the greatest path to really break free. Not only is it the greatest path, it is the greatest evidence of someone who's broken free in this area of their lives, and that is through generosity. 
Because when someone is able to give eagerly, joyfully, and generously, they are demonstrating that they truly are free financially. And if you are living in that place now, you know what it feels like. If you're not, that's how you get there. You, you give eagerly, meaning I want to do it. Nobody's twisting my arm. I, I want to give. I give joyfully. Says, I actually find pleasure in being a blessing to others. And I do it generously. And that I do it in increasing ways as God enables me to do that. There was a study done by some professors at Fraser University a few years ago. And they gave their students $10 Starbucks cards. And they divided them into four different groups. They said to group one, we want you to to go to Starbucks and use it on yourself. To another group, they said, we want you to give this card to someone else and tell them to go to Starbucks. To the third group, they said, we want you to take someone to Starbucks, but then we want you to use the card on yourself. In the fourth group, we want you to go to Starbucks with someone and treat them. Now, when when they did those things, they came back and they measured the level of happiness within them Which group do you think had the greatest measure of happiness? The fourth one. Those that were connected in blessing someone else. See, we've grown up with this um, statement. I don't think it's true. Uh, Money doesn't buy happiness. You know, and just to prove that, if I said, you know what? Your boss is going to give you a $100 bonus check this week. Would you say, nah, really? I don't want that. I don't need it. You go, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. We can go out to eat, I can go skiing, I can do a number of different things with this. It's pretty happy. What they found out is that money can bring a degree of happiness. You can, you can have an experience. You could buy something you've longed to get. There is a measure of satisfaction that comes with it. Let's not kid ourselves. There is happiness in it. That's why we like raises and we like financial gifts and gift cards and all those things. But here's what they've discovered. When you spend it on yourself, the happiness has a short life. And when you actually share it or give it to somebody else, the happiness lingers. And that's why Jesus said this, found in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 38, it is more blessed to give than receive. Meaning it is is a blessing to receive, but it's a greater blessing to give. And people throughout Christian history and even people outside of the church have recognized this. For example, listen to Winston Churchill who said, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Or Maya Angelou, giving liberates the soul of the giver. Liberates the soul of the giver. That in through holding things lightly and being able to say, let it go. I'm not going to sing a song, so don't give. I just let it go. Let it go. If you can hold it lightly in your hands and let it go, that's a sign that I'm free. I'm free. I don't have it, and it doesn't have me because I'm free. And I want to challenge you today to step into areas of freedom that maybe you've never stepped into before. Because I think so often we are deceived in our minds thinking, I don't know if I can go there with God. But I want to tell you, God, God wants something for you that's so much greater than anything he would want from you. And so I want to share with you today three, three blessings of, of having the opportunity to give. Because we often think it's a burden, like, ah, oh, here we go again. But I think it's really an opportunity to do a number of things. So let's look at three of those uh, things that gives us an opportunity to do. First, when we give, it declares that God is first. There's a real interesting story in the Old Testament, the book of of Kings. Elijah the prophet is being chased by Ahab, who's a wicked king, and his wife Jezebel. And they want to kill him. So he flees the, the vicinity of Israel, goes off into pagan territories, 
And he comes across this widow in a town called Zarephath. And he sees this widow, and they're in the famine too. They don't have much to eat or drink. And he says, "Uh, excuse me, could you get me something to drink? And the woman says, okay, I can do that. And as she turns to go, he says, and while you're at it, could you bring me something to eat? And she says, well, I don't think I can do that. You see, all I have is just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left. It's just enough to feed me and my son one last meal before we die. And then listen to what Elijah says to her. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And when she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now, this sounds really crazy. The woman would probably be thinking, hey, you're the guy that knows God. You should be bringing flour to me. Why are you asking me for the little bit I have left? Because he says, you're about to see what this God that we worship in Israel does for people. See, she didn't grow up going to church, didn't grow up really knowing much about God. But God, in his grace, sends Elijah to this woman. And uh, so she goes. And she makes this little cake. And she gives it to Elijah She goes back, hey, there's more flour, more oil, make some more. And every day she goes back, there's more there, and it goes until the famine is broken. And Jesus Jesus remembers this story when he begins his ministry because when the people in Israel don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, he says, you know what, this is so frustrating. You people who've grown up with the scriptures don't know me. But there was this widow And in fact, he says this in Luke chapter 4. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And what Jesus was saying was, it's a shame that there wasn't great faith in Israel. I had to ship Elijah outside the country to find a woman who would take me at my word. And see, there was one little word in that story that's so critical. When she said, you know, I I need to make stuff for my son and me, he says, no, 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 first, first, make something for me, and then take care of you and your son. Now, understand, by making that first was very risky. What if that's all I have? What if there's nothing left? What are you asking me to do? I'm asking you to trust in the God I worship. And so she did, and look what God did. And see, this principle of honoring God first comes up over and over and over again in Scripture. We find that when when God says, I want the first fruits of all your crops that you bring in. Give me the first part. Shows that you honor me. You know the source of where it came from. He says, I want the firstborn of the beast of the field. Dedicate them to me. Sacrifice them to me because I am the God who gave them. I want the firstborn of the sons of your family. They're going to be devoted to me. And when we come to the New Testament, Jesus said, seek Blank the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. And what will happen? All these things that you need will be given to you as well. In the the book of Proverbs, we read this passage. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God wants to be honored first because it requires faith. It doesn't require faith to honor God with leftovers. 
It honors God and causes faith when you say, God, I'm going to give the first part to you because I recognize it came from you and that you will take care of continuing to provide for me. And so that's the whole principle of tithing in the Old Testament was to give God not just, the, not just 10%, but the first 10%. Because God, I'm going to trust that you are the source. And when they did that, God continued to meet their needs. So God, God says, I want you to put me first. And we have an opportunity when we give to recognize that God is first. Sir John Templeton was an American-born investor, banker, fund manager, and philanthropist. 1999 Money Magazine called him maybe the greatest stock picker there's ever been. And he was a godly man. He said that over the course of his life, he, he's watched men and women, he says, of those that tithed, and they did it for an extended period of time, I did not see a single one not fail to become wealthier. It's as if God blessed them because of their faithfulness. God wants to be honored first. We have that opportunity when we give. Secondly, when we give, it reveals the affections of my heart. When Jesus came, he said, there's really only two kingdoms. Everything that you're doing in your life is, is identifying you with one kingdom or the other. There's the, the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of light. And there's a kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. We're going to talk more about the kingdom over the next few weeks. But Jesus was identifying, you, you, you're in one or the other. There's only two, and you belong to one or the other. You can only serve one master. Which is it? And then he goes through all these different kind of examples of, of how we delineate which one we are serving. And he says, part of it has to do with your stuff, how you view your possessions. So he says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's not opposed to treasure or the accumulation of treasures. He's just saying, make sure you're putting treasures in the right place. Because all these earthly things, you know, the things we put in our garage or we put in our driveway, we put in our closets, you know, all the things we wear, all these earthly things, they'll, they're going to wear out, they're going to rust, they're going to go out of style, they're going to get stolen, something's going to happen to them. He says, they're temporary. He said, make sure you're storing up treasures where they'll be secure for you for eternity. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, think about it. What are eternal things? God. God's eternal, right? God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. God's word is eternal. And people. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere. So those three things, when you invest in any of those or a combination of those, you're investing in eternal things. When you're, when you're helping people to worship God by building worship places, that's an investment into the eternal God and people's hearts being devoted to God when you're investing in people learning God's word or people coming to know Christ and giving their lives to Christ or missionaries that are going around the world sharing the gospel. You're investing in something eternal, something that will outlast this life. And so uh, we have the opportunity to store up treasures in another place. And Paul says the same thing to Timothy when he writes in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's not a killjoy. He doesn't want us to take a vow of poverty or to be miserable. He says, I've given you good stuff. Enjoy it. Enjoy what I give you. But then he goes on to add, And they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Enjoy what you have and then share it. Share it. Be generous with it. 
because you know that in, in sharing it, you're actually laying a foundation for the future, a foundation that will never be taken from you. And so we are, you know, you can't take it with you. There's no hearses at the funeral. You don't take it with you, but you can send it in advance ahead through investing in things that are eternal. Jesus once told us a parable of a man who found a treasure in a field, so he went back home and sold all of his possessions to get the money to buy that field because that treasure was like everything he ever dreamed of. That treasure was all he hoped for. And all this other stuff he accumulated, ah, I can get rid of that because I'm getting this. And I, and I think what Jesus was trying to say is when you discover the value of the kingdom of God and what it does in your life, you're willing to say, I can part with all this other stuff. I can let it go because what I'm getting is so great. It's kind of like, you know, back here I'm holding on to this can of Coke. And I really like Coke. And, you know, it's, it's, it tastes really good. But, you know, it's limited. You drink it and it's gone. It's temporary. You could have a can of Coke or you could invest in Coke stock that keeps rising in value, keeps getting better, keeps moving up. The kingdom is growing The kingdom that started small is growing, growing, growing. It's reaching around the world. Millions of people are becoming a part of it. It is a big enterprise. And when you invest in the kingdom, you're you're really buying stock in something that's eternal, something that has value beyond this life. God wants us to, to understand the value of storing up treasures in another place. Missionary David Livingstone said, I have no I place no value on anything I possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was his guiding force. You probably never heard of the name Chuck Feeney. I never heard of it until this last week either. Chuck Feeney was the man that developed duty-free stores in airports back in like the 1950s. And, and pretty soon that became very popular and he became very wealthy because of it. He invested a lot of his earnings into technology stocks, became even wealthier. So this man who, who accumulated you know, in excess of $8 billion had to decide, what am I going to do with all this money? He says, I don't want to be like those others who wait until they die to have someone else give it away. I want the joy of giving. Because he determined this. This was the motto of his life. Do your giving while you're living. See where it goes. Direct where you want it to bless. And so he set up a foundation which merged with some other foundations and put 98% of his resources into that foundation. And his goal was that within about 15 years, all that money would be given away and they would shut the foundation down. And that's what happened. He began to give the money toward education, toward fighting disease, breaking up uh, war conflicts in Northern Ireland, uh, solving medical needs in South Africa, working to create a better um, health system in Vietnam. And he's done stuff in the United States and blessed colleges and all kinds of things. And he was different than most people in that he was anonymous. There were no plaques on buildings, no, no names etched in stone, In fact, nobody knew who this guy was until the government required donors to be identified. And then it became known who this guy was that was giving all this money away. But he and his wife lived their last years in an apartment in San Francisco. Just a common life because they found such joy in being a blessing to other people. When you give, it identifies where your heart is. And here's the third thing it does. It's an opportunity to identify me as a child of God. God is the greatest giver, right? Does anybody give as much as God? God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his one and only son that if we would believe in him, he would then give to us forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, hope of eternal life in heaven, 
but it doesn't stop there. I mean, if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you recognize the fact that he gives you access to the Heavenly Father. He gives you wisdom when you need guidance. He gives you help to fight temptation. He gives you grace when you are humble. He gives comfort to those that are broken. He gives rest to the weary. He gives strength to those who wait upon the Lord. He gives discipline to his children who strayed. He gives, gives, gives. When, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, he gave me his Holy Spirit to live within me. He gave me a new nature. He gave me a new heart. Gave me a new family. Put me in a new kingdom. Gave me, new, gave me a new purpose in life. And God gives, 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 gives all the time. He's a good father, right? He gives us so much. And so it just makes sense that it, his children would be like him. Generous, giving. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. If you're just doing what everybody else does, what's so amazing about that? People that don't know God do that. He says, you need to be different. Love your enemies. Do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is saying here is this. Don't give as others deserve. Give as God has given to you. Because when you do that, you will, you will identify yourself as a son of the Most High God. Because God is generous. And he doesn't ask us to give anything he hasn't already given to us. He goes on and says, you know, if someone, someone needs forgiveness, if someone needs uh, grace, give it to them. Why? Because God gave it to you in the first place. You came empty-handed to God. You freely received, now freely give. So just a little bit later, two verses later, Jesus says, a verse you've probably heard before, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And we always hear this in reference to financial giving. You know, if you give to God, he'll give back to you and he'll pack it down, it'll spill over all, all over your body, you know, it'll, you'll have more than you know what to do with. And I do believe that God can do that, but I don't believe that this passage is speaking directly to that. It's speaking of generosity as a way of life. When you give grace, when you give kindness, when you give mercy, when you give resources, God says, you know that measure that you use to give to others? I will then fill that to the full and even overflow back to you. I want to caution you. People often take this and twist this to say like, ah, here it is. You kind of put it in, the, in the, the bank and you withdraw a larger portion. If I give to God, I can expect God's going to give me more. And see, what happens is the motivation becomes greed. Is that really what God's trying to do is create people who just want more and more and more from God? But what Jesus is actually saying is this. Don't give to get. 
Give because you've gotten. Give because you've already gotten from God. He's already been merciful to you. He's already been gracious to you when you've not deserved it. He's already given you so much. And the way to say thank you is, God, I'm going to extend the blessing to other people. He goes, good, because when you do that, I'll bless you even more and I'll spill it all over you. Be generous because I've been generous to you. The motivation is gratitude, not greed. We don't give to get. We give because we've gotten. But when we do that, we get even more. See, that's just the side benefit. It's not the motivation, but it's a side benefit. Generosity begets more generosity, and it identifies us as a child of God. In in James, the first chapter, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God's a good father. Gives good gifts to his children. Every good gift you have, guess where it came from? It says from God. Every good and perfect gift came from the Father. And so when we then extend those gifts to others, it's just saying, I'm just acting like my daddy who's been so generous to me. How could I hold back what he's given? Nothing breaks the hold of materialism quicker than a spirit of generosity. Spirit of generosity that says, I will consume less and I will give more. I will worry less and I'll enjoy more. That's not what the world teaches you. It's what God teaches you. I want to share with you that in the Bible, if you look at giving, there's actually three levels we go through in our spiritual growth in giving. The, the kind of foundation level that's been taught through the church history is, is honoring God first with tithing, giving God the first portion, the first 10% that belongs to him. Now, people will say, yeah, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to do that. He commanded the Israelites to do it because it was part of their law. But we now live in the age of grace. We're in the New Testament. We're in the age of grace. I say amen to that. Show me the scripture where Jesus says, don't, don't honor me that way anymore. I don't need to be honored anymore. They did it in the Old Testament. You don't need to do it now. In fact, when I think back of those in the Old Testament that honored God in that way, I I think, man, they never had a Bible that they could open like this. They didn't have printed Bibles in their homes. They didn't have phones they could pull out, which I can do anywhere at any time, multiple versions, with all kinds of study aids. They never had that. I do. They never had true forgiveness of sins. They kept offering sacrifices because it looked forward to a day God would forgive their sins, but they never had forgiveness, like real forgiveness. I do. I know it's like to feel like all my sins have been washed away. That's incredible. I can't imagine the lingering feeling of not knowing when that was really going to happen or if it was really going to happen. And I had the Holy Spirit living in me. Those people in the Old Testament caught like glimpses, maybe tasted the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit living in me, walking in me, bearing fruit in me strengthening me, empowering me, doing God's work in me. It's God's presence, Emmanuel, living in me. They didn't have that, I do. Why in the world would I think that, that I would want to honor God any less than those in the Old Testament did? Just, to me, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yet, amazingly, statistics say about half people that go to church never give anything to God. And we live in the most blessed culture in the most blessed period of time in history. To me, it doesn't make any sense at all. I know where it came from. God, and I want to honor God with that first portion. For some of you, 
You're not there yet. And maybe you've heard it for many, many years, and, and I'm not going to guilt you into it. I'm not going to shame you into it. I'm going to ask you to do this. If you truly want to be a generous person, maybe what you ought to do is just start this. Before you can be a generous giver, you have to be a regular giver. So just make a commitment. Every time I get my paycheck, I'm going to take a first portion of what I get, and I'm going to say, God, this is yours. And you know what you can do with technology now? You can actually set it up online, even on our church website, yestogod.org slash give. And I've done that for myself, that every time I get paid, and actually I've broken it to even in the in-between pay periods, spread it out, but every Friday, I give. It just, I don't even have to think about it. It's like taking your medicine at night or going to the gym. It's just part of who I am now. I don't have to agonize, because I know a lot of people who um, are, are good givers, but they're random givers. Like, I give when I feel like it, and when I feel like it, I, I'm generous. But God wants us to be steady generous, to make it a lifestyle, not a not a fleeting moment here and there. And so we do that by just saying, I'm going to commit. And that's one great way to make it consistent in our lives. Secondly, when we move beyond that, we go to what are called offerings, which is giving above and beyond to needs within the church or needs outside the church. We have special projects in the church, the care center, the building project, Operation Christmas Child, a lot of different things we do within the church, but there's also projects outside the church. Missionaries, uh, we sponsor a child from Compassion International. There are non-Christian groups that do very good things like the Red Cross. And so when disasters hit, some of you give to them. That's wonderful. God's given us uh, an abundance so we can help a number of different causes. And so you don't have to give to everything. That's where you pray and say, God, what would you want me to do? Do you want me to give to that homeless man on the corner? Do you want me to give to the Springs Rescue Mission? Do you want me to support that crisis in another state or another country? Then I want to respond accordingly. It's a really great thing to be free to respond that way. And then there's an area where, where I hope you experience sometimes the area of giving an extravagant gift. We see this in the Bible where David gave to building of the temple, gave, um, gave much of his fortune to building of the temple for the worship of God. We find the widow who had two mites. That's all she had. It's not the amount of money. It's the amount of the sacrifice. She gave her two coins. And Jesus says, now that's a generous person. We have the woman who Jesus saved from her life of promiscuity, and she broke this alabaster jar of valuable perfume, and he poured it, she poured it on Jesus to anoint him for his burial. He says, that was a great thing, even though it could have been sold for a year's worth of wages. I mean, that's expensive perfume, and she poured it out in Jesus. He said, that's an extravagant gift. We have Barnabas in the book of Acts selling a piece of property, bringing that money to the church and say, hey, I know there's a lot of poor people here, and I've just got this extra property sitting around. Take this money, distribute it among those who have needs. And there'll be times in your life where you actually will have the thrill, I'm, I'm really serious, the thrill of making an extravagant gift. And the reason I say thrill is because I've experienced it a few times in my life. A couple times for Julie and I in our marriage, we've, we've stepped out in a place that we thought, this is a little scary. We really have to trust God, and this is going to hurt. But, but we're excited. Nobody else told us what to do. Nobody pressured us. We just felt, God, we really are excited about this. It feels kind of like jumping out of an airplane with a skydiving you know, parachute on. It's like... I'm terrified, but I'm thrilled at the same time. And I remember the first time I did this, I was uh, 23 years old, working as an intern at a church. I was making $8,000 a year. And I just felt in my heart that when the church had this project where they're raising money for their new um, worship center, I said, I would like to give $1,000. That's over 10% of my salary. And I'm paying student loans and not have a lot to live on. But I said, God, it would be awesome for for me to be able to do something I've never, ever done before. And you know what? On that day when they received the offerings, 
I had my check in hand, and it wasn't the biggest offering by means of anybody in that church, but for me, it was, it was a day of freedom to be able to, to say, because, you know, I grew up pinching pennies. I hold very tight to things, and for me to let it go was like, oh, this feels so good. That I'm not attached to it. I can let it go, and I'm not going to cry about it. I'm actually excited about it because I'm trusting God in a way I've never trusted him before. And so I hope there'll be a moment in your life. If you really want to be generous, say, God, someday I love to do something that's just, it just sounds crazy to other people. But see, God doesn't want us to live the normal life. He wants us to live a supernatural life. He wants us to be unusual. He wants us to be people who believe that there is a God who not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the, the stars in a million galaxies. And that's the God that we serve. And that's the God that we trust. I'm not trying to manipulate you, bribe you, push you into being a generous person. I'm just saying it really is more blessed to give than receive. It really is because when you let go and you feel the freedom, it feels good. I could, I could go to heaven right now and I'd feel thrilled because... I'm not attached to anything down here. That's why I get excited about the time to give that we have uh, every Sunday. It's an opportunity that many of us clap. You know, I clap for things that bring me joy, and giving brings me joy. And you know how you can tell when you have a generous heart? You get excited about opportunities to give. Some of you think that's crazy, like, ah, it's just church talk. No, I'm really serious. <laughs> when something excites you saying, hey, here's another opportunity. Think we should? Think I could do this? It's exciting. And that's why we do this. So I'm just going to invite you. It's been a long offering meditation in some ways. It is it's time for the offering. So I'm going to ask our ushers. I'm going to ask our ushers to go to the back to prepare. But I want to share with you as we're doing that, um, I want to share with you a story. I want you to know that I'm, I can speak from my own experience that the water is warm and you can put your feet in. You can actually go into the deep end. It's going to be okay. It's actually going to be really good because here's what I've come to, to know. What God wants for you is so much more than what you think he wants from you. And some of you may have heard of a guy named Tony Robbins. Tony's a motivational speaker, writer, businessman. But early in his career, he was an unknown man. He was single, living in California. There was a time in his life where he said he just hit bottom. He said he was watching General Hospital every day, eating junk food. He put on 38 pounds, felt like a slob, and he was running out of money. He had $19 in his pocket. He, he reached out to a friend whom he loaned $1,200 to, and that friend said he, he wasn't able to pay him back. And so in his pity, he decided to walk down a couple miles down to this little Mexican restaurant in El Torito, called the El Torito. And he walked down to this restaurant because he knew they had a Mexican buffet and he could eat a day's worth of food during lunch hour. So he went down there, sat, he was staring out the window, when in, in the restaurant walked this little boy with a woman, older woman. Little boy was wearing a suit. He was very courteous to this woman, sat down at the table and Tony noticed that there was something unusual about this boy and how he interacted with this woman. He imagined that must be his mother. So after he finished his meal, paid his $6 for it, he walked over to the table, and he said to this little boy, excuse me, I wanted to acknowledge you for being such an extraordinary gentleman. It's amazing how you treated this woman. He says, well, this is my mother. He goes, that's even cooler that you brought your mother 
here to treat for lunch. She goes, oh, no, I'm not treating her. I'm only eight. I don't have a job. He says, oh, but you are treating her. And Tony says he reached in his pocket, pulled out his $13 and change and put it in front of the boy. says, you are taking your mother out to lunch today. He goes, I, I can't take that from you. He says, I'm bigger than you. Yes, you can. And Tony Robbins says, he walked out of that restaurant that day. No, he says, I flew out of that restaurant that day feeling lighter than I've ever felt. Because that day, I became a changed man. That's the day I became wealthy. Think about it. He has no money. (laughs) He has nothing. And he's walking out of this restaurant with this incredible joy and this feeling like, it's all going to be good. I'm the richest man around. See, I've discovered it is far more blessed to give than to receive. You know, you could look at Tony Robbins today. He's worth, he's worth a half billion dollars. You could say, yeah, he's a rich man. But if you'd ask him, when did you become wealthy? When did you really think you were wealthy? Was it when you hit a million dollars? Was that, was that when you crossed the line and felt like you were a wealthy man? He goes, no, no, no. It was back at that restaurant in El, the El Torito when I was going through the worst time of my life and had an experience with a little boy in a restaurant That was the day I became wealthy. Today's the day you could become wealthy. Just putting God first in your life, trusting him. Take care of your need for faith greater than your need for food. And walk with him and see what God will do in your life. That's why I really do love this time because it's a time for me to say, God, you are deserving. You are first. I'm your child, and I want to act like you, not only here at church, but when I leave this place, to be generous in everything that you've given to me. And so let's give with joy today these offerings, these tithes, maybe even extravagant gifts. Let's give these to the Lord because he's worthy. So ushers, you can come as we pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we have right now to give to you. Lord, I know some will give online and they'll go to the website later, but Lord, right now, we just want to say to you, you are worthy. You've been so good to us. Every good and perfect gift we have comes from you and we praise you for that, Jesus. So use these gifts for your glory. Meet needs, Father, in this church, in this community, and even beyond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're so glad that you're here today. We want to be free people that are free, free to hear the Spirit, free to move, do whatever God calls us to do. And we want our community to know that too. And that's why in just a few weeks, three weeks from today, is Easter Sunday. I love Easter. And uh, more people come to church on Easter week than any time of the year. We have five services, two on Saturday, three on Sunday. And we need a lot of help serving in different areas. There's information in your bulletin how you can come and not only attend a service, but be an usher, greeter, child care worker, help in a number of different ways. Go to a service and then come back the next day or, or stay later or earlier and help in some way because we want our community to know that the Jesus that we have come to trust loves them too. And so I hope that you'll do that this Easter. You can either do it online or go to the connection counter in the foyer. But for today, what I want to do um, is just encourage you to look at all God has done in your life. I was thinking, if I made a list of all the things that God has given to me over the course of my life, if I'd make the, how long would that list be? I mean, today on the drive to church, I was just reminded eight years ago, um, our daughter's youngest son, his name is Esten, 
Eston was uh, two months old, and his liver was failing. He was losing weight. He lost several pounds. You know, babies can't afford to lose weight. They're supposed to gain weight. He was losing weight, and they didn't know what was going on. And so it was getting pretty scary. So we flew out to Tennessee to, to just to be there with our daughter, and, and they discovered a, a simple problem and turned things around. He's a robust eight-year-old now. And a year ago, we had our, our youngest son on our son's side go through a very traumatic birth. And uh, we thought we might lose him. And now he's going to have his first birthday next week, and he's strong and healthy, and we just hold on to these little ones with such joy because God has been so good to us. He's given us so much. We're so grateful. I hope hope your heart is grateful too when you recount what God has done for you. And so we're going to stand, and let's sing that to him. Let's announce. And prayer partners, if you'd be available up front here, if you need just to pray with someone, or maybe you're going through a struggle, maybe you feel this is a season when God's not been so good to you. We'd love to pray for you. And so we'll be available up here as we sing.